On this day in 1999, a song was released that brought auto-tune to the masses. Cher goes to number one in America with this terrible song, Believe, <laughs> opening the floodgates for many more auto-tune hits, although I see both my uh, panellists are dancing to it, so maybe I'm the one who's uh, incorrect here. Yeah, this is both- the guy who's in charge of Friday Night Friday Boring Music. No, it's a very Screaming, popular, popular Power Bell of Friday. No. Do you like the song? I do like the song. But I got I got Randy in New Zealand to play Carly Ray Jepsen's Call Me Maybe, remember? So, you know, maybe I'm not the the best. You're a fan? Uh, I just think it's just I'm terrible. a fan of Cher. Yeah. I think she's maybe. Um, auto-tune went... Thank you, Brad. He's p- pumping it up here. <laughs> auto-tune went uh, on the market at 97 and quickly became an invaluable tool for producers because it could correct vocal pitch in real time, flattening notes that were too sharp, sharpening the flat ones with minimal effort. So that is auto-tune, popularised by, I believe, by uh, the one and only Cher. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, now... Regarding uh, voicemail, we don't have mobile reception on the farm, so can't get texts. There's a huge hill on the way. Uh, another one says, Wallace, you are as soft in the case on the show. Wrong on this one. <laughs> so much information can be given in a brief voice message. Why would anyone choose a lengthy text option? I think that's a bit rude, don't you think? No, no, no. Fairly fair assessment. Um yeah, anyway. Uh, now, we had quite a big response regarding uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, and we talked about, Dean, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Broadway, New York, mm-hmm. and London, and all those sort of wonderful places. But closer to home, uh, there was an equally as good as they say a th- uh, a Phantom of the Opera, and that is in Tapanui. Last year, Tapanui, West Otago, staged Phantom of the Opera, starring. The one and only Jeff Area and Kyla Wilcox. With us is Paul Johnston. Kia ora, Paul. Yes, hello. Hello, Wallace. Very good. Tell us about Tapanui and the Phantom of the Opera. Well, uh, the West Otago Theatre Society staged a musical probably every second year, and last year they staged for their 40th anniversary Phantom of the Opera. And uh, the main lead was Jeff Ray, R E A. Oh, sorry. Uh, and. Uh, that's all right. And, uh, and Craig Wilcox and, um, sorry, um, C- Craig Wadsworth and Kayla Wilcox. And look, they were just absolutely outstanding. And uh, we had about 10 performances and they were all full and standing innovations every night. It was just uh, an amazing show. Isn't it, a, doesn't it go to show, Paul, the testament to a community like Tapanui, not large, that can wrap around and conjure up from wherever the talent required to put on a phantom of the opera. Yeah, it is pretty amazing, and I think it's uh, just those small communities and the and the community spirit that they have that allows it to happen. You had have been to Tapanui, Dean? I think I called through it when I was in the army, actually. I think we did it. Called through it. it. Yeah. Well, very much. I think they wanted to get rid of us because we had too many vehicles. Uh, so. Alexia? Yeah, my grandfather was born in Tapanui. Really? Yep. Yep, my grandmother was from Katangata. Well, well, my connection to Tapanui, Paul, is I went to see the West Otago Theatre not long after it was built because we oh. knew close friends in Tapanui. They're still there, mm-hmm. and they were absolutely proud of this wonderful, wonderful performance theatre that you have there. Yes, it, it is a wonderful little theatre, and great shows get staged there regularly. What's next? What's on the next for the Council of Tapanui? You've done your Phantom of the Opera. What's next? 
Well, it's not the same production team, but not too far away from that in Clyde, a production team called Waiata Productions. They're going to be putting on Les Miserables this year. Wow. Like Super ambitious. Hall. This is awesome. Can I ask how you did the falling, falling chandelier? I wanted to how did ask you manage this. The I'm glad you chandelier? did. <laughs> Was it a chandelier every night for 10 nights? Uh, yes, there was a chandelier. It didn't actually crash all the way to the stage. It did a fair bit of rattling, but they couldn't quite work it out. Got to crash and come back up again. But but it was other than that outstanding. I'm very impressed now. Good actually. on you, Paul. Good on you. West Otago, Tapanui. Uh, we're here for it. That's uh, Paul Johnson there. Uh, regarding, uh, yeah, my plumber's voicemail says he doesn't check his voicemail, so I text him. He always then calls back, so I assume he doesn't have the time to continually check his voicemail. Also, when you're a tradie, speaking from experience, yep. you get endless calls from people wanting to make your website. What do you know about tradies? Because I run a company that is a tradesperson oh, company. Apologies. My husband's a plasterer. <laughs> My son works for us. <laughs> you should have known. I've bored you with this before, Wallace. You should have remembered. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, it is 20 to 5, the panel. It has been dubbed the policy bonfire. This tranche of reprioritization, along with Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' first round of cuts, would give the government more than $1 billion to be redirected to measures to reduce the cost of living. Bread and butter issues. Uh, so a suite of climate-related policies on the block. You've heard about the scrapping the clean car upgrade scheme. The Prime Minister says it won't harm efforts to lower emissions. Others have been discussed a bit, but a lesser one, although quite popular, is the container return scheme. That would see refunds for returning containers. We all have memories of collecting your Fanta bottles for cash, recall that? All those Coke and Fanta bottles traded in? That's been kicked down the road. With us is Sue Coots from the Zero Waste Network. Kia ora, Sue. Kia ora, Alice. Yeah, good to be here today. It's a pleasure. This was 20-plus years in the making and now, again, just a little bit out of reach. Again, Sue? Yeah, I guess when we first heard the news yesterday, we were all a bit despondent, but um, I was thinking about it today, and I'm feeling like we're carrying it up the stairs, you know, so it's just got it, we're almost at the top step now, and we just have to keep thinking that, you know, there's only one more to go, and it'll be in, it'll, we'll be able to get it in place. Um, the good thing about container return scheme is that they work really well and that it's not a new policy. They're doing them all over the world. It's working, you know, we can look around the world and see great examples of how successful they are. So, yeah, um, I was I perhaps okay. Yeah. So you just uh, a good analogy there. You sort of it's it's just been deferred, hasn't it? And I was a little, I guess, I was a little bit surprised because um, the sheer popularity. Whenever I talk about the container return scheme, you'll just get the texts lighting up. So I can recall doing this from a local scouts or you know your 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 air. Uh, air training kids, corps. air training corps, you know, raising money. For those not familiar, what is the container return scheme? Well, basically, it's a really good way of recycling single-use plastic, you know, plastic cans, um, drink containers. It's a useful strategy because it does two things. It um, uses a deposit, so when you buy your drink, you pay 20 cents and you get that back when you recycle it. So it gives a really good incentive for someone to either take back their cans and bottles or to pick them up if they find them lying around. And then there's a few cents included in the purchase price to cover the cost of properly recycling it, which is a real problem with our current situation where we just don't have a good mechanism for funding recycling systems in our country. What do you reckon, Alexia? Other countries do it and quite seamlessly. Is this small bookie stuff, so not worth pursuing? 
or just a deferment? What's your what's I mean, your angle? Do they do they really do it seamlessly? I, I don't know. Do we have that evidence? I mean, how how much money well, is it going to cost to put it in place, or do we just re-educate people to take their containers back anyway? Well, okay. Or? So when I say seamlessly, I because we touched on this when it first was mooted, Sue and I did read examples of the likes. Of, I think Germany, where you had. Um, um, dispensers in supermarkets where you could return your bottles pretty easily. Yeah, so what we what we see in New Zealand is at the moment we recycle less than half of our containers and that's a pretty standard amount for the kinds of systems that we have like um, outside and public space recycling and if you saw Fair Go last night you have a good idea of how successful public space recycling is in New Zealand at the moment and if you put a container return scheme in place, the the actual cost of running it is lower than the cost of the things we're doing at the moment and you get a way better outcome because you're getting 85-95% um, of, the, of the containers coming back and the ones that do come back are clean and there's money in the system to be able to fund them getting effectively recycled. So big problem with what we've got now is loss of trust and confidence. So a lot of people are like, ah, oh, does it really work? Does it, you know, you can hear it in your voice, you know, does it does this recycling really work? And with a container return scheme, you can really feel confident that it does. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of publicity recently about how a lot of our recycling just gets rubbish. It just doesn't get recycled. Heart it's kind of, of a, it, a it? sham. Yeah. And I th- that, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, but it just goes all the rubbish tip anyway. What's the point? Yeah, and I think that's a critical problem with the systems we have is that the money's not in the system to do it well and there's not a great incentive for people to actually um, bring their, you know, put their containers in the right place. What are you? Would you support something like this, Dean? You've got a bottle in your hand. You can either throw it in the rubbish or go. Mm, I might save up six or seven of those and take it down to a container deposit scheme. I think you've got to be a bit of a Grinch to turn around and 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 get rid of any idea like that kind of stuff. But but what I, what I feel we're missing is you know what, the the government communications people should be fighting this policy bonfire term as much as possible. I'd have Chris Hipkins using the word triage constantly, just <laughs> triage vomiting out of his mouth. Um, because you know when you're doing triage, you need to know what is the parameters of triage. Why why are uh, uh, you know why are some of these things um, uh, delayed? And the, the the use of the term bonfire makes you think all that work's gone um you know which we've we've just heard and that would be pretty pretty sad news for you know an organization that's that's really trying to make a difference on that yeah, recycling but the reality so it's just been deferred yeah it's just been deferred so we're really hopeful that we'll see it come back around anyone who's um thinking about climate policy or environmental policy be looking at it to be at the top of their list when they putting together their election manifesto all the hard work's already been done and, you know, there's a great reason why we have a climate and a waste problem in the first place is that we've been kicking these kinds of policies mm. down the road for a long time. They're talking about 20 years at the beginning. Well, if, you know, we've got a, at some point, we just have to accept that that's a good idea. 80% of New Zealanders think it's a good idea. I think we need to go for it. We have to start somewhere with plastics, don't we? Have you seen Andrea Vance's latest story and stuff where they went to a very, very, very remote island and is covered, the beaches and the dunes are covered with plastic waste? that washes up there from all over the world. People can get really defeatist. And so that's where I think, you know, hearing Sue say, you know, hey, this hasn't been burned on a bonfire, this idea. It, it might be deferred, which, you know, we can all argue whether that's a good idea or not. But but if people get too defeatist and say, oh, there's no point, you know, there was a cyclone, we can't do anything, that's a bad attitude to have as well. You wouldn't be buying plastic, so would you? You'd be squeezing your own orange juice. <sighs> I mean, um, 
You know, there's yeah. one thing that I do that I feel bad about are gloves. I feel like I, I use um, disposable gloves too much and I've been looking for better alternatives there. Here's one for you, Sue. Toby says, thousands of Europeans like me are screaming at your radio right now. Is there evidence that deposit schemes are seamless in Europe? Yes, there is. 50 years worth. New Zealand needs to catch up with the rest of the world at some point. And on yes, the absolutely, yeah, that's that's what they're saying in Scotland. You know, they wish that they could say that they're putting in an innovative policy, but they're actually not. And the great thing about that is you've got all the evidence from around the world to support the case for going forward with it. Kia ora, Sue. Thanks for your time there. That's Sue Coots there from the Zero Waste Network talking about a, a less uh, um, talked about aspect of the policy triage, in Dean's words. Uh, now, uh, speaking of uh, just going back, if you hadn't um, heard... Uh, I am sharing some private information with you. Uh, It's a rare chance to... You might have heard uh, Miriam talk about marrows and the family calabasa recipe. And uh, Miriam got permission from Grandma Betty, Betty Mills, to share a Spanish-Greek recipe, delicious. Mum's site immigrated from Salonika, nowadays Thessaloniki, in 1913 due to London due to rising anti-Semitism. And this is a marrow recipe that came with them. You can email me at thepanel at rnz.co.nz if you want that family recipe for calabasa. That sounds delicious. Mm. Yeah. Uh, to this, many wheelchair users say they're being charged more for tickets to events like sports games or concerts. Some people reckon four times the amount. Jack Taifare told RNZ's reporter Jonty Dime tickets for the recent All Whites match in Auckland were being promoted at $20, but $80 was the cheapest available for wheelchairs. And he couldn't even see the goal or bottom third of the pitch. With us is Disability Support Network Chief Executive Peter Reynolds. Kia ora, Peter. Kia ora. Is this discrimination? Um, yes, it is. Um, pure, and, pure and simple. Um, you know, like you, I had a phone call this morning from somebody who wanted to get some tickets to Kinky Boots. And uh, they were told that the website uh, that they went to, the ticketing website, said that if they have somebody who pushes their wheelchair, a support person, um, they've got to get a special card uh, to prove that they are the support person pushing the wheelchair. Um, some of us would think it's bleedingly obvious who pushes the wheelchair. Uh, so I contacted the, the ticketing agency and said, look, this, this is not on, it's just silly. And after a brief conversation, they agreed. They promised they'd update their website and get rid of that and, and just make it a little bit easier. Instead of presenting these these obstacles uh, in in the face of disabled New Zealanders who just want to enjoy the same things that other people do. So, yes, it is discrimination. It is hard, listen to this story, Alexia Russell, to disagree with that. If there was a barrier, this would be it. Yeah, it It is. is. Yeah, it's really hard. But it's also, it's hard to know how much onus we should put on the people who stage these events to provide subsidised tickets for wheelchair users. Are you talking about the event centre? Uh, well, anywhere, the, we're being brought up. Yeah. I mean, the, what you're talking to about was the breakers the other day. Yes. And I know people who paid $60 and were sitting at the top and still couldn't see the court. There's a lot of problems wrong with it. They should have stayed at NSEC as far as I'm concerned. But um, I guess at least they get courtside, which is pretty good. But um, to charge people sort of a lot more for 
just because they're in a wheelchair, I, sticks in the craw. Stay there, Peter. Let's bring Dean in. Uh, I mean, on the the face of it, like you say, it's hard to I'd sort of d- disagree with it. I think the only thing I'd want to make sure is that whatever we did, that it was going to the people who were, um, you know, that people weren't trying to game the system by maybe, you know, turning up and, and, and trying to use it to get a better spot and taking away from someone who's, you know, genuinely disabled and needs that. And needs that'd that be access. pretty rare, wouldn't it? Uh, you'd say that, but I'd, I'd experienced it um, myself. Um, uh, a friend of mine who was disabled um, and there was someone who was trying to say um, at at this this event that, oh, they they needed these special um, considerations and that and they um, didn't want to provide any, you know, we even saw it with people taking off their masks and stuff like that. I suppose it's one of those things. What would it be, 0.1% who does that? Yeah, but I think you know if that if that it's like people parking in disability spaces, you know that that's oh, yeah. you know Stay that's there, a, a it's a massive. Oh, okay, problem. Well, I see what you're saying, Peter. Well, well, so I'm, I'm just amazed. I thought I heard Dean essentially put a good argument forward for a triage system, and I thought no, I'm not going <laughs> I'm not going to step out on that one. I'll get roasted. Look, I, I don't I don't think a lot of people are saying that they want a special discounted price. I think what people are saying is they just want to be treated like everybody else. You know, yeah. if you get in early enough, you can get a decent ticket. But th- that option's not being presented. Instead, you're being told, oh, I've got to pay four times what anybody else pays for a pretty average seat. I think getting ex- the runaround on the phone is awful I really too. object to. I just think it's extraordinary. Uh, uh, and also having to pay, as I understand, for the support person as well. There must be legislation on this. Is well, this a health human rights com- yeah, commission? That, this, yeah, the, the, this would have to be um, uh, consideration for that, wouldn't it, Peter? Yes, yeah, it is. If a complaint's made to the Human Rights Commission, they've got mm. a, um, a disability commissioner who I'm sure will want to, mm. to have a close look at this. The problem is the volume of it. We, you know, we've got, um, I guess, a lot of examples of this sort of behaviour going on, and at some point it becomes a community issue. Oh, so this happens a lot? Say, yes, it does. And, and um, uh, I, I noticed... It does. I notice it even, like, I walk a lot, and I see stuff all over the footpath, and in my head I think, how would you get along the footpath? You know, I like using scooters and that, but I always try and make sure they're parked off to the side. So I, I like that it's a community point as well. We've all got to be thinking yeah. about how do we get everybody able to attend stuff. Hey, Peter, I assure you the panel will come back to this. This is a really important issue, so kia ora for raising it. And uh, I'd like to hear from anyone listening who actually has, you might be, um, you might be in the position of using a wheelchair and this has happened to you um, but being charged more for tickets because you are in a wheelchair text me, get in touch with me, text me 2101 or actually just email me at the panel at rnz.co.nz It's Tuesday afternoon, we have the pleasure of having Dean Hall and Alexia Russell with uh, me this afternoon. Well we're coming into a completely different topic here, we're coming into the tail end of the salmon run season in the central South Island, and people are asking, where are they? Salmon migrate from the sea to the headwaters of the main central South Island rivers to spawn between October and the end of April, but the numbers have dropped really sharply. And it's not just the South Island. Mark Webb is Fish and Game Officer Central South Island Fish and Game Council. Mark, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora. So have there been low numbers in the past couple of weeks or the whole season since October? Uh, yes, it's, well, certainly um, low numbers most of the season. Uh, we tend to get pulses of salmon that um, react to river flows and various other things in nature that 
that no one understands. Uh, so at, at times there's been some a good number of salmon around in most of the rivers, but most of the season has not been good. And it, it's not just this season. We've had this now for, well, basically since the 2000-2001 season. Our, oh, our salmon gosh. runs are really in a, a, a crisis at the moment. So is it, is it warmer grief. oceans? Uh, sorry, what was that? Is it warmer oceans? Well, these is are fresh the water. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's very likely a contributing factor. Um, because it's all of our salmon fisheries right across the east coast of the South Island, it, it doesn't seem like it's something within each of each individual river or each individual population. Mm. And so the major um, trigger is likely to be where all of those fish are in the same environment at the same time, and that really can only be at sea. So we're trying desperately to, to pin it down to, to the ocean environment or at least to, to something that we, that we can say, well, this explains the, 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 the crisis uh, situation that we're in. Good grief. Salmon fishing in Aotearoa in crisis. Dean Hall, you're a salmon fisher? Uh, no, I'm not, but I absolutely love the freshwater salmon. That so Aoraki salmon is the, the freshwater Stunning. one. I, I prefer freshwater more than the um, the seawater one. So are the salmon freshwater fisheries, are they affected by this as well? Like uh, Aoraki? No, no, no our, our, our freshwater fisheries are really, other than just oh, some so it is at the ocean are, level before they... Get in, okay. Uh, yes, well, there's landlocked populations, um, so they don't actually go to sea and they can be self-sustaining. Mm. But most of the farmed or most of the salmon that, that you get um, in the supermarkets are farmed salmon, and so there's quite a few salmon farms around the South Island um, in Nelson Marlborough and particularly in the hydro canals in the Mackenzie country. Okay, so as Alexia said, contributing factor, possibly the warming of the oceans. Uh, what do, do you do from here? Clearly unsustainable. Uh, if this is actually a progressing issue since the early 2000s, uh, what, uh, what's the plan, Mark? Okay, we, we, we're doing the best that we can to ensure that the freshwater habitat is, is able to sustain fish. What the, the number that we get back, we can't we can't influence that at sea, and so we just have to hope that or or manage to get the number that we need to to get to the spawning grounds, and we know that okay, we're putting out good numbers of fish. Um, if conditions at sea are right, we'll get a good return. If they're not right, we'll get some return and hopefully enough to sustain the fishery. So at the moment, our our focus is on getting salmon back to the spawning grounds and having those spawning grounds in as good a condition as we can have them. I mean, we're going to have to accept that these changes are here for good, mm, aren't they? I mm. mean, this is what's seen the uh, increase in the number of great white sharks along the east coast of the North Island. That We have to now swim through jellyfish eggs. There's a lot of changes that are happening. Yeah. And, and Indeed. And, and to salmon anglers, this change is quite clear. Um, as you said in your introduction, um, you know, our, our, our salmon fisheries, there's, there's not a lot of people that know about them, but certainly the anglers do, and so it's hitting home to the anglers that, yes, there's problems with the habitat of sea-run uh, sea salmon. Interesting topic, Mark. Hey, thanks for being with us on the panel. Taking you out with a little bit of Phantom of the Opera, closing down on Broadway after 35 years. Dean Hawke, kia ora, mate, you've been wonderful. And Alexia Russell, you've been fantastic as well. Lovely to see you both. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow. 3.45 Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next.
Shake it.